I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. Tom is short. Uh, <laughs> oh, we, we have one of those shows that's going to be really, really touchy and difficult for our listeners and ourselves, mm-hmm. but we thought there's some information in here yeah. that might be a little different story. Just want to get a range yeah. of opinions, really. We've got a gentleman this week by the name of Eugene Bird, who is the president of the Council for the National Interest. He's a gentleman with a very prestigious resume in service, a diplomat in the United States, served our country in, in military service. And we're going to talk this week about the search for the truth and real understanding of the Mideast crisis. Uh, his colleague and his organization was actually on the flotilla that went to Gaza. And uh, when we heard about these people, I thought it might be an opportunity from some American diplomats who have been stationed in, in the Middle East for a long time to get their perspective on some things regarding uh, how to have uh, a workable, peaceful situation in the Middle East. They'll have some very provocative statements. Uh, we just stick with facts, not really with the spiritual aspects of things. Uh, that's for another show. Mm-hmm. But uh, that ought to be interesting. Yeah, we'll see uh, what happens. There's a lot of background of these gentlemen because you'll want to know really where they're coming from. So this first segment will be a lot of that. Uh, but then we'll be back for a quick wrap-up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, no stranger to controversy, Bionic. Well, and that's right, and the Future Quake show itself often uh, treads those waters and hopefully for productive means. Uh, today we've got an issue uh, that's sort of a hot-button issue within the Christian community. Uh, we've been in the middle of it. Our listenership uh, has a varied, uh, varied array of opinions on it. But we're going to uh, hopefully accomplish a lot today with some really good hard information from some credible sources uh, talking about the search for the truth and real understanding of the Mideast crisis. And we have a very distinguished gentleman who's joining us today. We have Mr. Eugene Bird, who is the president of the Council for the National Interest. And Mr. Bird, I want to welcome you for your inaugural visit to the Future Quake Show. Thank you very much, Dr. Future. Well, it's just wonderful uh, to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I, I hope that uh, the future is better than the past. That's what we're always looking for, right? I think we can all agree with that. And uh, it's always sometimes choppy water sometimes uh, getting there, but hopefully we're going to have progress, and today will be part of that process itself. Uh, to begin our important discussions today, could you tell us a little bit about your background and credentials uh, pertaining to the subject of Middle East politics and affairs? Well, originally I was a Northern European specialist. Uh, I went to school in a uh, university in Sweden, um, I, where my grandfather came from. But, uh, of course, uh, the Department of State, in its infinite wisdom, immediately put me in the Department of Near East in the Department of State, and I became a political officer on the Israel-Jordan desk. In those days, they had a combined desk of Israel and Jordan, even though they didn't recognize each other. So my education began about 1955 uh, in the Department of State, and then in 56 I went out to uh, Jerusalem, and I was the vice consul in East Jerusalem, which is a very controversial place, I suppose, and <laughs> my family was was with me, and uh, my son has just completed a book uh, on uh, Jerusalem, and uh, growing up in, in that area, called uh, 
crossing Mandelbaum. Mandelbaum Gate was the uh, gateway between West and East Jerusalem in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I I was in charge of bringing such uh, dignitaries as uh, Senator Jackson and and uh, Tom Dewey and uh, an occasional multimillionaire, one of whom uh, said, I want to offer $10 million to these people to make peace. <laughs> now, were these some uh, uh, famous um, American uh, multimillionaires, uh, anyone who was yeah, what, distinguished Mrs. for their... Yeah, Mrs. Winston Guest, she didn't know a thing about the Middle East, but... Uh, she had come uh, come on a visit with eighteen suitcases and uh, a uh, a maid, and uh, she uh, was uh, uh, a person that had probably three or four hundred million dollars in in wealth at that time, which was a lot more than uh, probably Bill Gates has at this time <laughs> relative mm-hmm. to you know fifty years ago. Right. Uh, but Mrs. Guest was uh, was with us for about a week in the American Colony Hotel where we were staying at the time, and uh, we got to know her pretty well. Wow. What fascinating experiences. How many years in total did you live in the Middle East and, and in the Jerusalem area? Uh, well, I never got back to Jerusalem. I was supposed to become a Hebrew specialist instead of an Arabist. Huh. And I became an uh, accidental Arabist because the Hebrew, uh, I was chosen for Hebrew, and uh, the... Um, Hebrew program was canceled because uh, there was only me <laughs> as, a, as huh. a student. Huh. And so they said, it's too expensive. We'll give it to you later. And so I never got back. I was appointed to Tel Aviv at one point uh, when we were in India. Um, and the ambassador to India at the time, Kenneth Keating, decided that he wanted me up at New Delhi. And so uh, my uh, appointment to uh, Tel Aviv was canceled. We went to Beirut, Cairo, but essentially I became a Saudi specialist. I spent 10 years in Saudi Arabia, altogether about 21 years in the Middle East and India, five years in India and the rest of it in the Middle East. They never let me back to Washington. Are you familiar with the term persona non grata? (laughs) Yes. Well, I always said that I was PNG'd out of Washington and never allowed back again, and that was true until I retired. Is this because you uh, learned too anyway. much in the field that uh, was counter <laughs> maybe to policy? Well, I I was a journalist originally, so I had a, a lot of communication skills. In fact, uh, the journalists from overseas, um, the uh, New York Times correspondents and Boston Globe and so on and so forth, always used to make a stop and call on me, and I probably revealed too much, um, although I never got into hot water with uh, my uh, Foreign Service ambassador or boss for saying too much. But uh, I went through four wars in the 21 years uh, in the Middle East, and uh, my favorite, uh, there were seven wars altogether uh, since Israel was created in 1948. And I went through four of those, and frankly, I think we could have presented by what I call shock and awe diplomacy. Um, my uh, my brethren in the Defense Department don't like me to use that term, mm-hmm. but it really is a term that can be used. You, you shock and awe diplomatically just as you do um, militarily. So um, we, uh, we, had, uh, we had a lot of fun in our, and uh, 
we were uh, forced to, out of our post twice, once in Jerusalem by the war of 56 and again in 67 out of uh, Cairo. So I had a lot of uh, <laughs> experience with uh, failures in U.S. Mm -hmm. foreign policy, and that's one of the reasons I, I was chosen by Congressman Paul Findlay and, and Pete McCloskey and uh, Senator Aberyst to, to run uh, the Council for the National Interest because they felt I was brash, had fire in my belly, and uh, thick skin, and it takes all three. Well, I want to make sure our listeners, if they didn't catch all that, understand clearly your time in which you actually resided in the Middle East, an area was approximately how long? Uh, from 1955 till 75, and then again from um, 1978 to 82. Okay. And I go back every year uh, on visit. In fact, I've just come from Gaza uh, okay. just uh, two weeks ago. Okay. And, and of all those experiences you had, I know you also had a, a naval officer uh, career, I believe, in was it World War II. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not very proud of it because I, I, I never got shot at. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I was I was aboard the USS Princeton as a lowly ensign, and, uh, and I had uh, uh, a group of befores uh, guns uh, that we that I was in charge of, but... Uh, we uh, we shot at uh, targets, but we never shot at, uh, okay. <laughs> at the enemy. <laughs> well, I think you made up for lost time by putting yourself in very tense areas in the world anyway after that time. So uh, you, you get in longevity at least. Uh, just to summarize this on your credentials, of all the things you did, what of your experiences most solidified your understanding of what really is going on in the Middle East of your experiences? Well, I, I think uh, coming as a Northern European specialist into the Near East Bureau and being put immediately on the firing line of the Israel desk, which was, you know, a pretty hot desk, really. Mm -hmm. And there was a buildup. The Suez Canal was being nationalized. Mm -hmm. And we knew that a war was coming. but And we could have prevented that war, the 56 war, but we didn't. Uh, Britain and France went to war, and Israel just sort of joined them uh, in the Sinai mm -hmm. for a time. So I, I think uh, the experience in Jerusalem, um, I go back to Jerusalem whenever I can. Mm -hmm. And I, I have uh, many uh, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish uh, friends, uh, including some uh, major figures on the Israeli side. I've just been in the Knesset. Uh, for a briefing and uh, with my group of seven people that I took out. Okay. Um, so that's it. Uh, Jerusalem. All that's, right. Uh, well, well that's what, uh, started it. We have a lot of people in our community, the kind of folk that listen to our show and related areas, that all have opinions. We all do. However, very few of us have any really hands-on, on-the-field experience in these issues and things we talk about. Everything sort of talked about third-hand or through information, through unknown sources. So it is a pleasure to have you today as someone who's actually been eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball with the players in this very difficult issue we're talking about. But I, I want to inform you just a little bit about our audience, and I don't want to stereotype them, but they largely comprise uh, hardcore Bible-believing evangelicals. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've done many shows of that light, but most of them believe in Bible prophecy and for a future destiny for the nation of Israel. 
uh, in some form in God's plans for the future. And, and of those, a significant portion of those listeners furthermore believe that God's promises of land and blessings to Abraham extend to the secular nation state of Israel today, and that Christians in the world today, as well as the American government here, should support Israel unconditionally in their struggle in the Middle East in support of this understanding and to be in alliance with God's plan, uh, as they understand it. And, and it's, as a part of that, they, they fear a lot of the current threats of Islam to both Jews and Christians, and particularly to the current nation of Israel. Uh, although I have to clarify that our audience is a very discerning, diverse, and contemplative bunch, and certainly a cut above most of the public. Some of them. Uh, <laughs> well, I'd say more hey. majority of them in, in their in their knowledge and their search for the truth. So that, that's uh, very elitist, Mr. Future. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is Mr. Bionic yeah, chiming in over with here. The, with the bad. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, Bionic. <laughs> yeah. This background, I just wanted you to know, this influences their acceptance of some of the information you're going to share with us today. So if you challenge the status quo of that understanding and the underlying assumptions associated with them, uh, please focus where you can on really hard verifiable data that supports your positions, particularly from witnesses on the ground, uh, to help facilitate a serious consideration of this information that, that will probably challenge their current position and the kind of data that they're getting from other Christian channels. Uh, I assume you're not prepared to make the theological arguments for or against uh, the biblical teaching on this matter, so we'll just focus on the verifiable historical events and data uh, for this aspect of the issue, and then we'll look at the biblical aspects on another day. Uh, having said all that, can you explain the purpose and the goals of this organization you're president of, the Council for the National Interest? Well, uh, very briefly, uh Congressman Paul Finley wrote a book, Dare to Speak Out, and that's sort of our mantra, uh, along with the opposition to the intimidation from uh, the uh, Israel lobby, uh, which, um, of course, uh, is, has every right to lobby, has every right to, uh, to try and elect its own people, etc., etc., but uh, some of their tactics are... Uh, not really uh, in tune with uh, American morale in politics, political morale, uh, morality, I should mm -hmm. say, political morality, uh, if you understand. And so we're in opposition to uh, the Congress of the United States and the president on occasion uh, and uh, individuals across the country who dare to speak out uh, who uh, are... Uh, uh, really criticized to the point of absurdity in terms of, uh, you know, Israel has a right to exist. Israel security is just as much a part of our belief as, uh, as it is a part of the belief of President Obama. But uh, the real security for Israel is in peace with her neighbors. And we take groups out from Cairo to Beirut by car because if you fly, you kind of don't understand what's happening. If you go to Gaza and then go around and go to the Knesset, go to Masada, the Israeli uh, last fort uh, mm -hmm. to be defended against the Romans in 75 A.D., I think it was, 74 A.D. <clears throat> um, if you see this on the ground, you see the Dead Sea, you see uh, the Mount of Olives, and you see the old city of Jerusalem, which is uh, very close to my heart. Uh, I know 
almost everything about the old sea. I've, you know, I've even had my pocket picked on the Via <laughs> della Rosa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, you, you begin to understand that uh, uh, these people, the Palestinians and the Israelis, they both have a right to exist, but they can't agree on how to exist. Uh, and we think the uh, Truman recognition of Israel, um, that was fine. It was early. It was within two hours of the Declaration of Independence by Israel. But he should have specified that the United Nations uh, resolution passed only six months earlier with U.S. help and all, all sorts of, uh, of uh, cooperation from the Western nations um, and, and from the Soviet Union. Uh, that uh, that would have been a way of defining Israel, and that's it. that is the serious problem at this point. Mm-hmm. Is it within the green line? Is it no? It's all of everything west of the Jordan. What is the promised land? Uh, um, I had the foreign minister of Egypt tell me once after negotiating with the Israelis. You know, it's very difficult to negotiate with people who think that God has given them this land. And I said, well, God did give them this land, but uh, what land did he give them? Uh, it, it really isn't very well known because the first uh, group of Israelis uh, to settle uh, came across from Jordan, from the heights of the Madaba area, and they saw a, um, a very green, uh, lots of trees, and so on and so forth. And uh, so it was a promised land in, in many ways. And uh, they never defined Israel uh, very um, directly since 1948. Israel has, as, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we've just had uh, um, Ben Gurion uh, a statement he made to to his uh, uh, to his uh, cabinet when they were faced with the idea of an armistice agreement that would give them only. You know, 78% of the land uh, of uh, west of the river, and he said, "Don't worry, we'll get the rest of it later." And essentially, that's what we're struggling mm-hmm. against. You, you know, you bring up an interesting point um, because mm-hmm. while while we're talking mostly on actual events and in trying to get the the actual information from someone like yourself who was on the the inside when these things occurred. Uh, you're getting a little bit in the area that we normally talk about, which are the spiritual issues related to this. Uh, and promises and covenants are one thing, and timing is another. Uh, and when we study the Bible, we find out that uh, God gives his promises, but timing is everything. In fact, the original uh, entry into the promised land was purposely delayed by God for uh, over 300 years. And it was done because he was working with someone else. He He told... Uh, he told them that the sins of the Amorites had not come to their fullness, so, so therefore they languished in Egypt for a lengthy period of time. And we've just studied in our studies in the in the book of uh, Joshua, I believe it was, that mm-hmm. there was some some things that they did, and they didn't get certain pieces of land and drive the Philistines out. And they were told then that they would not receive and occupy the land at the time because of that. So it's a much more complicated issue, even if you only look at it from spiritual standpoints and not political, uh, of the timing when things happen. And sometimes when we make things very, very simple, that's when we get into problems. But but as I hear you saying, the political officials from the very beginning had a long-term plan that went beyond 
the the reach of the UN. And from reading your yeah. website, and, and your website uh, says clearly you want to see a lasting peace in the Middle East for everyone, uh, with protection for Israel and for their neighbors as well too. Um, and and you, the history that you give on your website gave an impression to me that there were a lot of players that that uh, really dropped the ball, including in the West, the British, and others, who exacerbated the problem itself. My, did I understand that correctly, that it's been a problem that's had problems contributing by a lot of different parties? Uh, yes, I, I think that's that's the bottom line for the Council for the National Interest. We We think that the United States has been, on occasion, um, too active, but in most cases they have failed to prevent these wars from happening, and as a result there has been an increased uh, antagonism between the peoples of Israel and Palestine and Israel and Syria, Israel and Lebanon. Uh, you know, it doesn't make sense for the United States to stand by uh, and sort of wash their hands, if that can be a biblical term, mm-hmm. wash their hands of of, uh, of maintaining uh, peace, because that is in the interest, not just of Israel and the Israelis, but it's in the interest of all of the peoples of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- Back to your organization again. What are some of the other notable people associated with your group and their credentials? You mentioned there was several congressmen, correct? That uh, yes. were, were initially uh, very important yes. in starting this. Gilchrist, uh, yes, Congressman Gilchrist is is on our board. Uh, we have Anna Baltzer, who's written a wonderful book on uh, uh, witness in Palestine. I recommend it as a, about the best thing that's been written in the last four or five years, and she's in St. Louis uh, now, but uh, uh, the uh, important people are probably uh, Ambassador Robert Keeley is chairman of the CNI Foundation, and uh, we have uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Newton, David Newton, who led our group of seven uh, on this recent tour that we did uh, from uh, Bay- Cairo to Beirut. And it was the first time he'd been on the ground, uh, and he has a 30-year career. He was ambassador to uh, both uh, Iraq and Yemen, a very experienced guy and, and a wonderful personality. And uh, the chairman of CNI itself is... Uh, Harriet Fulbright, the widow of Senator William J. Fulbright from Fayetteville, Arkansas, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, right. uh, she's a she's a wonderful person. She's in Brussels tonight, as a matter of fact, appearing at International Women's Conference. But um, we have a, a lot of uh, really interesting personalities across the country, and. Frankly, uh, it isn't the people that we put on our board. It's the sympathizers that we have who may feel that they will be too criticized if they join an organization that says, why not a new policy towards Israel and towards Palestine? Uh, Why not a policy that makes uh, sense from the standpoint of how powerful we are and how much we could do 
in preventing wars instead of uh, creating wars. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned the CNI Group and the CNI Foundation. Can you explain what it is and its purpose of the foundation? Well, as a foundation, um, <clears throat> it's uh, tax-deductible, uh, which the Council of the National Interest is not. So the foundation is there uh, right alongside the uh, CNI. Uh, CNI does some lobbying. Uh, CNI Foundation mm -hmm. does very little lobbying on the Hill. Uh, we uh, uh, do radio program uh, worldwide every week, uh, an hour. Um, in fact, the, uh, the next one is... Um, Mm, uh, on Thursday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, and you can get it on wsradio.com um, slash uh, forward slash uh, CNI, and you go to Studio A, and, and you're on for uh, around the world. Uh, mostly people from the Middle East we have on. Mm -hmm. uh, very interesting people that uh, are span the, the whole uh, uh galaxy of, of opinions about the Middle East, uh, Jewish, Israeli, uh, 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 Muslim, and, uh, and some uh, leading uh, uh, congressmen and senators and so on and so forth, that we, uh, all of whom have retired, unfortunately, mm -hmm. because we find that the people that are still in Congress, uh, they, they feel uh, intimidated by the lobby mm -hmm. to the point where they don't even want to appear on a program of this kind. Mm -hmm. We also have a, a, a program for uh, women to speak across the country called uh, Jerusalem Women Speak. Uh, uh, the Jerusalem women are a Muslim, a, uh, Israeli, a Jewish, and, uh, mm -hmm. and a Christian. Uh, and that's going off in October, uh, October 15th or something like that down mm -hmm. in Fayetteville. And and down in Texas and up in Minnesota. Okay. So uh, uh, we'll we do uh, some publications and and we do quite a few DVDs from our trips. We always have a, usually a professional filmster with us. This time we didn't. We we used uh, one of the students that was along. But um, we uh, we have uh, uh, such uh, uh, DVDs as uh, the. Uh, History of Jerusalem, uh, the, the uh, way in which uh, the, uh, the tourist trade is the largest single business for, for uh, Jerusalem and, and, quite frankly, for Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's huge. And uh, so there is an um, economic competition for the old city of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And we, our, our DVD explores that. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future and Tom Bionic. We don't have much time right now. We've got very busy interview time, but um, this was the majority of the background on the gentleman. We knew it was important to establish his credentials so you can understand his background and some of his provocative opinions that his organization have, including some congressmen as well who are part of it. Uh, we hope you find it interesting. It will get more uh, involved in the next few segments, but until then, here's Merv to tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. 
Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, any last thoughts Let's for tomorrow? Let's just get out of here. Come back tomorrow. Uh, we'll get in more in-depth in this interesting discussion. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, question mark, bionic. Question mark. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, there'll be a lot of questions from this week's show. Mm-hmm. We're getting ready to start our second installment with uh, Eugene Bird, the president of the Council for the National Interest, talking about the search for the truth and real understanding of the Mideast crisis. Uh, this was an organization who had one of their people on board the flotilla going to Gaza. Uh, a lot of these are career diplomats with uh, American service. Uh, some congressmen are involved. Uh, Mr. Bird has a distinguished service uh, as such, that as well as in the military, uh, giving his view, and it's a very strong view, about how to have a lasting peace in the Middle East. Um, you may have your own views on some of his uh, suppositions, but at least it's another voice as someone who's actually been immersed in the culture, in the people there. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we don't cover are the spiritual aspects of it. Pretty much uh, zero. We'll do that later. That's another dimension that's a responsibility of us Christians, but yep. we'll need to have another show for that. But no further ado, here's Eugene Bird. And we'll talk about it later here at Future Quake. Uh, what I what I what I gather from your organization is that you try to get people directly from that region, from different views. They testify as to what their real world experiences are there, what they personally experience, so people can have a much better education on what's really going on directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Of, of yes, what and goes- we welcome people of all kinds from the United States. We have evangelicals, uh, people from Illinois, from uh, San Francisco, from Seattle, uh, who are evangelicals. They they may be uh, a little less uh, uh, biblical than you have described your your group, but uh, not too much. Uh, they they are uh, Christian and very uh, about one percent of our our membership is Jewish. And about fifteen uh, percent is from the Middle East. Uh, mm-hmm. The rest of them are just ordinary Americans. Okay. You know, you might be a uh, the ideal person to ask this question. We were having uh, Dr. Future and I were having a discussion last week uh, on our Friday news section uh, session uh, about the the ability to share your faith there in uh, in Israel. Now, I've heard that I've heard uh, a range of opinions that it is in fact. Uh, it's in fact illegal to do so, and you will be Christianity. Yeah, if you Christianity. Share Christianity you'll be on the share, street. Yeah, and you'll be you know fined, and they'll throw the book at you, or you know whatever the whatever the. No, no, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite, well, one of my moments was Rabbi Rose from Portland, Oregon, uh, a very famous uh, Reform rabbi. And the Reformed Jewish uh, group, you know, is very big here in the United States, but it's not recognized in Israel. Right. So yeah. th- there is discrimination uh, against some of the Jewish, uh, uh, you might say, uh, spiritual organizations. Uh, uh, the Orthodox, of course, are very accepted 
but uh, the reform, uh, there are no reform temples, uh, as far as I know, in, mm-hmm. in Israel. They're seeking them, but uh, and you can't get married uh, except in an Orthodox uh, uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's prejudice against uh, Christians, uh, but there is an attempt to take over a lot of uh, properties that are owned by both Christians and Muslims in East Jerusalem and around the countryside. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it becomes a matter of, as one of my friends who ran a very major organization here said, it's a matter of land and water. And maybe that expresses it more than anything else, but prejudice... Uh, 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 against Christians per se, no, I don't think you, you may you may find people that are, you know, they'll be hostile, but it's not explicitly yeah, very hostile. Right. Yeah. yeah, see, we've heard yeah. different we've heard different stories on this. In fact, one group had contacted me who does work over there and actually very supportive, you know, the Zionist cause. He said that actually it was rest- the limitations by law were restricted to people under the age of eighteen of proselytizing with Christianity. So. Um, it's been well, difficult for us. Proselytizing is one thing. I, I think missionary work would be uh, would be a no-no in terms of okay. of that's Israel. A, yeah, that's exactly what I'm asking. Okay, so Christian yeah, missionary yeah. work, uh, at least overt missionary work, would be yeah. Be if you're talking about missionary, yes, yes, there is. There are very very strict laws on that. Okay. Well, that's what we were wanting to clarify. I, I got one more question about your organization, and the reason why I'm asking you so much is a lot of our, our guests might be a little taken aback with some of your positions, and, and I want to establish up front really who you are. Well, why, would you that be? why would that be? <laughs> I know there's no controversial uh, controversiality about this topic, but uh, as far as your organization, uh, are there any particular individuals or groups that are the primary funders of this group or where you get most of your resources to uh, do your work? No, the average uh, contribution per year is about $115, $120. So you've got we the high rollers, the, uh, high rollers in your group. Yeah, right, all the, right. All the right. Rothschilds, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, those are $1915, but uh, yeah. uh, uh, I, I think uh, our budget is, a, is around a half a million, not, not very much, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do uh, an awful lot with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do uh, two uh, pilgrimages a year to uh, uh, Cairo to Beirut or Beirut to Cairo. You know, we alternate mm-hmm. them to Israel and her neighbors. Because unless you understand uh, both the politics, the culture, and the desires of, of the peoples uh, that surround Israel, uh, as well as those in Israel itself, and they're a very varied lot. Um, uh, you, you don't really uh, have a practical basis for a wise policy towards towards the area. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's no major organizations like Muslim groups or other groups that have other no. agendas that are the main backers no. of your organization. Uh, no. Now you, you foundations. Foundations stay away from us because they, <laughs> okay. they, you know, they're intimidated by your, the yeah, by your the positions. Uh, yeah. How many people in total are affiliated with your group? It's several thousand, is it not, that have some connection? Yes, there are about 7,000 
who have contributed uh, to the group. We have an email list of around 10 or 11,000. We should we should have 10 times that many. Uh, a few years ago, I asked uh, one of the major polling organizations if they would do a poll asking the question, would you join an organization with this, 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 and this attitude towards Israel and uh, Middle East policy and so on and so forth? And we spelled out our policy. Right. And, and uh, the uh, pollster came back amazed. He said, there are five million people out there who would join you? And I said, what are their names? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He didn't. He didn't. Yeah. Uh, but there are uh, an awful lot of people um, are fed up with uh, what's been happening in the Middle East, as you indicated at the beginning of your mm-hmm. program here. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, how do we uh, get out of this predicament? Well, the most practical way is to go back to the basics of land and water and uh, sharing of Jerusalem and uh, somehow, uh, you know, Messianic uh, Christianity and Messianic Zionism are very different from each other, but they are both present in the Holy Land right. today. And uh, I think uh, if we can come to a wise understanding of what these people want. The Prime Minister of Jordan said to us just last year, he he got very upset and very angry talking about negotiations with Israel, and he said, what do the Israelis want? And uh, we said, well, they they want it all, of course. They'd like to have all of the land without any of the people. But uh, they're not going to get that. Uh, We heard a lot on this recent visit just a few weeks ago uh, a fear that uh, the Israelis and the Americans would push a million and a half people out of Gaza into the Sinai, and it would become Egypt's problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, when we got to Jordan, their their version was uh, the Israelis are planning to deport all two and a half, uh, well, mm-hmm. three million people from from the West Bank and, and East Jerusalem plus a million and a half uh, Israeli citizens who are uh, Christian and Muslim. Uh, there are 200,000 Christians in, in Israel who are citizens of Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, about uh, a million uh, two Muslims, a million point two Muslims. They have, um, they have 10 seats in the Knesset of uh, 120 seats. Um, which, you know, is, is, is okay, but they're not allowed to have membership on any of the security committees or defense or anything of that kind. They're kept away from that. Because they're so distrusted? They're, yeah, Their yeah, citizenship yeah, sure. is, yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're distrusted and, and, uh, they're very loyal citizens of Israel. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to become members of a new state of Palestine. I, I've talked with several mm-hmm. of them, uh, leaders. Interesting. Uh, they want to they want to remain as uh, Israeli citizens, and gradually there is uh, a spread of uh, Palestinian Israelis, Israelis with Palestinian citizens. Uh, I'm sorry, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, 
who have moved into Haifa and uh, hardly any in Tel Aviv and hardly any in West Jerusalem. Um, so, uh, and, and none in the West Bank settlements, mm-hmm. uh, as a matter of fact. So there is a lot of discrimination going on from that standpoint, but uh, I would just have to put up with mm-hmm. it until final settlement. Well, it sounds very, uh, it sounds much more complex, the status and the views of the different people, than what we hear in the very simplistic terms that make its way into our media. I think that's exactly what we always lack, isn't it? Um, uh, I'm sure, sure Mr. Bird would be yeah. able to, to either back me up yeah. on this or tell me I'm crazy, but it seems like here in the United States we always take, we have like one or two strands of evidence when in mm-hmm. fact it's it's so, so, so complex there that... And that's not just in the Middle East. Yeah. It's a problem even bigger than the Middle East in the yeah. United States. Yeah, and, uh, well, I hope I haven't, <laughs> you know, I, I hope I haven't, uh, you know, I, I tend to go on because I have endless stories uh, over the past 50 years. But uh, I, I hope I haven't indicated that it's uh, too complex to solve. It, it's right. not. It's really quite simple. You just have to define Israel, uh, what are her boundaries, and you you must share Jerusalem in some fashion or other. Mm-hmm. And there are several very, very good shock and awe diplomacy ideas out there mm-hmm. on how to do that. Well, I, I um, want to I get into that, but if you, if you don't mind, there's a few more sure. specific questions I want before we get into this end game here. Yeah. Um, the information that you're sharing, it's, it's having some, you know, questioning issues about not only Israel's activities, but even what our country does in support of it. And I know there's going to be a lot of people out there that we hear in our country that will say that kind of talk uh, will create some kind of hypothetical claims from people that uh, they look at the content of your website and these assertions and claim that you're anti-Zionist or even anti-Semitic. How would you counter any claims? I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, at various times from people. How do you counter that with evidence that, in fact, you're not that, even though you ask these kind of questions? Well, first of all, let me facetiously say Arabs are Semites, hmm? and I'm an yeah. Arabist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not anti-Semitic, uh, but uh, putting it in a practical uh, right. fashion, uh, we think that if you show concern long-term for Israel, uh, you are not only not anti-Zionist, you're not anti-Semitic. I, I know a lot about the early Zionist years, uh, a hundred years ago, when they were going, running around saying, let's go to a country without people for a people without a country. And you get the implication there. Right. Finally, one, German member of the early Zionist organization said, but uh, Herzl, that's not true. I've just studied, and there are a lot of people there. <laughs> and that, I think, is sort of the bottom line that uh, both Israelis and, and Americans who are re- really interested in security for the state of Israel, uh, really interested in having a strategic, uh, wise, American policy towards the peoples of the Middle East, and there are so many different peoples. That's that's what confuses people. I think is the fact that there 
in 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 Lebanon, you know, the confessional system is broken down into 18 different uh, groups. And uh, in Israel itself, there are 18 different political parties. Uh, it's hard to to make uh, sense out of it, and I understand that. But uh, uh, in diplomacy, simplify, simplify. In fact, uh, the famous computer uh, recommendation, KISS, keep it simple, mm -hmm. stupid, <laughs> applies to, to foreign policy just as much mm -hmm. as it does to computers. Uh, a straightforward way is define what Israel is, then move on to a relationship between the two peoples, the Palestinians and the Israelis, and out of that will come uh, peace with Syria, peace with Lebanon, and peace with Saudi Arabia, and, and so on. Uh, I know uh, that uh, the Saudis would would welcome a solution to the Israel-Palestine problem, but we don't find the thinking within the Israeli uh, government at this point um, very wise. And unfortunately, we're we seem to be following their advice rather than the advice of uh, American diplomats and 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 experts and people who really know the area. Uh, can, can I clarify? Uh, what can I, I, wanna, I say? Yes. I, I just want to make sure I understand. Uh, your, your organization's position is you believe Israel has every right to have a presence in the Middle East, have a country, have a place of safety and security, yeah. and reside indefinitely yeah, absolutely. In, in peace absolutely. and to prosper. Uh, yes. You, you feel like a arrangement needs to be made that also recognizes the needs of the people as well in the region that um, can be a justifiable, long-term, sustainable environment. Is that is that correct? Yes. Uh, yes, and if you go back in history, uh, the first uh, Jewish kingdoms and so on and so forth, they they fell largely because they, they didn't have very wise leadership with regard to the other peoples that were the Philistines, the Amorites, uh, you know, all kinds of different people that came came through there. Essentially, the promised land is a bridge between Asia and Africa. And that bridge has been used for 3,000, 4,000 years almost uh, for armies to come and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, down to Egypt and and up to Damascus and and to Persia and so on, and you're not going to change that uh, basic geographic fact of it being a bridge, and you're not going to change the fact that there are today about 250 million, probably more than that, 300 million Arabs in 22 countries spread all the way from Saudi Arabia to Morocco. And uh, I guess what we're saying is Israel has to become a part of the Middle East and not try to become a piece of Europe or of America, mm -hmm. uh, the 51st state, as some some mm -hmm. people call it. That's a very uh, interesting in, in way. Of, that's a very interesting way of stating it because... Um, 
a lot of people would find that appealing. Uh, in fact, from strategic purposes, that they would be a pseudo-European or American state for policy purposes, but it's not going to create any kind of stability in the area if, in fact, they take on that character as opposed to their historical character. Of the, and that the creates cement. problems yeah. for us, of course. You're Huge right. problems. You know, it's Our relationship with, with, with the other peoples. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the history uh, of these people because there were periods in the ancient history of Israel where they did coexist peacefully with their neighbors. I think that in those times were the times of greatest prosperity for Israel. I think of the times of Solomon. The times of Solomon were the, the greatest age of the the influence and success of Israel, and they dwelt very peaceably with their neighbors. They traded with them, with Lebanon and Egypt and remote places. Oh, very important. Very Yes. Yes, that's true. And and well, it was a well, prosperous time for them as well as for the peoples around them. That's right. And that could return. You know, it, it isn't just a matter of oil in Saudi Arabia. Israel actually has a huge gas field off of off of uh, Israel that she's developing. Unfortunately, half of the field is in the Palestinian area of Gaza. And, uh, Oops. Well, that's going to gas flows. Gas flows very easily in a reservoir. I'm I'm right. I'm an engineer originally, so I, I know quite a bit about that. I think uh, Solomon was a strategic thinker, and one of the Israeli professors who was teaching at NYU at the time called me up one day and said, "I want to come down and talk with you. I've seen your CNI site and so on and so forth." And you know, he was just on a on a searching mission, a detective mission for. This uh, strange little organization of five, six thousand Americans who say no to the American policy in the Middle East. And we were talking at lunch, and he suddenly said, uh, "You know, we Israelis we're very good at tactics, but we're terrible at strategy. And what it means is that it's very difficult to get a strategic uh, sense with." Uh, 18 different political parties. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. Netanyahu may fall tomorrow. Uh, who knows? Right. And, uh, well, and that's, so, yeah, that's part of our problem in the U.S., too, is that we don't even realize that these <coughs> issues are controversial even within the state of Israel amongst its citizens. These issues that happen, people don't walk lockstep, the citizens of Israel, in, in common belief on how to handle these matters. There is a big discrepancy uh, in the people there itself, although we may only hear one view that comes back to the states, a lot of these issues are very controversial just amongst the citizens. Well, of course, uh, Israel has a censor and, and a very effective one. Um, not too long ago, uh, CNN did a, uh, uh, a a story about the Israeli nuclear program, and they never showed it because they were told that their correspondent in Israel would suffer. Uh, would not be given access, et cetera, if, if they showed it. So uh, I, I think hiding the truth from the from the public, uh, you know, for for almost 40 years they've had atomic weapons and they haven't admitted it, except it was one Israeli Arab legislator who got up and and started making a speech about the about the Israeli nuclear program, mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was quickly hushed up. But um, the cat was out of the bag, in a sense. And, uh, I, I think uh, a, a, a society that tries to uh, 
look only inward at itself. And I think uh, Israel is <clears throat> trending in that direction. It's a great mistake. Recently, a fellow named Margalit Avishai, who has written a book called The Hebrew Republic, uh, a description of how you'd have a, a one-state solution, shall we say. Um, and we're not one state. We're not two state. We don't care how many states. We, we just want the thing settled. Uh, and Margalit Avishai was on NPR from Aspen, Colorado, from from the Aspen Institute, and he was asked by J.J. Uh, Goldberg uh, of Atlantic Monthly, uh, "Well, how do you how do you explain the survival of the Jewish uh, community all these thousands of years when they've never been more than two percent, three percent of of any society?" and Avishai looked at him, he said, two G's. And J.J. Uh, Goldberg said, what do you mean, two G's? Well, we say among ourselves that we survived only because of God and the ghetto. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Israel is trending in that direction again. And we have to constantly seek to open the doors and windows uh, so that they will admit that there is three million Palestinians sitting right across the wall that they've created, another million and a half inside of Israel who are citizens, another million and a half in Gaza, altogether just about the same number of, of Jews as, as Palestinians west of the Jordan River, in spite of the fact that, uh, you know, there are about three or four million Palestinians outside uh, the Promised Land, outside uh, Palestine, in the Middle East, in in. Uh, Jordan, about two and a half million, and and a half million in uh, in uh, in Lebanon, and so on and so forth. So uh, that those those people have to be acknowledged, mm -hmm. and in any final settlement. In other words, practicality, just the sheer numbers of these people, means you know whether you're right or wrong or whatever, they cannot be ignored. Uh, it's just impractical to just pretend they don't exist, unless you. Unless you have a God who who, who uh, gives you a a special uh, pass on, yeah. on on the wisdom of uh, trying to confront neighbors that you know there are five million reasons why west of the Jordan River I like to say that Israel should make peace now mm -hmm. and those are the five million Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're not moving. We're back at Future Quake with Doctor Future and Tom. Mm -hmm. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what people think. Uh, his perspective of what he sees happen historically on the ground is a little different than what we hear yeah, I'm not sure. in the media that comes through Christian outlets. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to like nitpick or anything, but I'm not sure that I agree with everything that he said yeah. necessarily. But we don't have to. It's just food for thought, I guess. That should be normal on Future yeah. Quake. It's interesting, though, as we've been remarking that, like how intense this, I'm sure this will make some people. There'll be people trying to have us like disfellowshipped and... I hope not. I, I hope not. You know, um, the fact is, we know prophecy. We know God's going to do what he's going to do, whether mm -hmm. it's moot or not. The question comes is, does God have something for us to do? Yeah. And uh, we do know he wants us to be peacemakers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's good to know uh, other people and have mm -hmm. empathy for them like Jesus did with the Good Samaritan, or with the Samaritans and with other people he went to see. So, uh, Merv, would you come and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we really got to go. All right. Come back tomorrow for the next installment. Till then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, uh, question mark, question mark, bionic. Oh, one more than yesterday. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we're getting ready to start our third installment with our guest this week, Eugene Bird, who is the president of the Council for the National Interest. Uh, He is an experienced career diplomat in U.S. service, a former military member, served in World War II. And uh, he's part of a group along with some congressmen and other um, um, people from the diplomatic corps who have a very strong opinion about a proper way to create a lasting peace in the Middle East and our relationship with Israel. Uh, it'll be a very provocative opinion compared to what you're used to listen to, but our goal is to educate people on different views and might be able to get some information out here that'll be useful to your understanding. So no further ado, uh, here is Mr. Eugene Bird, and we'll be back to discuss it and wrap it up here at Future Quake. Well, let, let me make sure I understand the the end game that you all seek you seek uh, a peace that's structured uh and that recognizes the rights of the the Palestinians where they are in other words not a necessarily a relocation out of the region but where they would stay and have autonomy i assume is this something is is your all's recommendation they go back to the pre 67 borders uh what what do you see as an arrangement that you think is practical and protects all the parties in the middle east well, if you go there and just drive through the West Bank, you, particularly in the early evening when all the lights go on and the top of the hills and each one of these is a small Israeli settlement, and there are 140 of them, uh, you begin to wonder whether uh, a two-state solution is uh, still possible. Um, our our uh, attitude is uh, get them to the negotiating table. In fact, my facetious uh, uh, suggestion <laughs> is that you do the same thing Teddy Roosevelt did when he was faced with uh, Russia and Japan uh, fighting each other mm-hmm. in 1905. And he took them on the cruiser Augusta off of, uh, <clears throat> I think it was the cruiser Augusta off of New Hampshire, and said, uh, well, uh, gentlemen, uh, you have to make peace. <laughs> And my my thought would I'd take the carrier America on mm-hmm. and stand it off of Tel Aviv and fly everybody in and say you got two weeks to make peace <laughs> and you're not leaving until then. Uh, but that's not going to happen. Uh, we all know that. Um, mm-hmm. I I I don't know whether the Obama plan for four months of proximity talks. Um, we have this wonderful cartoon showing a. Uh, Abbas, uh, the head of the Palestinians, and Netanyahu on the side of a big shell that has proximity fuse. And 
boss is saying, that's not exactly what I meant by proximity talks. And you know <laughs> yeah. what proximity fuses are. <laughs> right. The closer, and the little guy in the in the corner says, the closer you get to truth, I'm sorry, the closer you get to a settlement, the more likely it is to explode. Right. Uh, and and th- that's that's somewhat true. Uh, uh, they have come close in 1995, and uh, then there was an assassination of Rabin, and and that uh, that ruined the uh, the Israeli. Uh, ability to make a decision. Mm-hmm. It'll have to be done by two strong men, like Kipling says, um, and we don't see those strong men at this point. Uh, Netanyahu is manipulative and strong from that standpoint, but uh, I've, I've interviewed him, and uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, he's of the caliber of uh, some of the early Israeli leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're looking for leaders, and we're looking for a real pl- wise plan that would permit both peoples to have a life. As one of the professors at Birzeh University said, you know, all we want, we'll give a life to Israel if they will give us a life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there you are. You're, you're kind of stuck in uh, one of my friends who works a lot with uh, Israeli uh uh, said that uh, when I asked him, well, what, are, what do Israelis think about uh, the Palestinians? He said they don't think at all. They just don't yeah. don't talk, don't discuss the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. That's not quite true, but it, mm-hmm. it has an element of truth in it. There's, there's a number of things I need to ask you that are more recent in what's going on, but if you could just do a quick comment and clarify, uh, if possible. The, the, in your website, you talk about the history of the founding of the state. And it appears to me that there were some poor decisions on behalf of the British that exacerbated the problem. Some of the people they put in charge, some declarations that weren't fulfilled. Maybe the UN didn't do all of their matter. Was it a case? Was there was there a series of missteps that were happened that actually exacerbated this by other third parties in addition to the key parties in the Middle East as well? That's put us in the mess we're in yes. today. Uh, yes, uh, I think you're entirely right. And the founder of Hebrew University would agree with you. <clears throat> um, uh, Magnus was his name, and he, he's a very, very famous uh, personality. Uh, he founded Hebrew University in the early part of the uh, last century. And his uh, great friend was George Antonius, who is sort of the, uh, you might say, historian of the uh, Arab uh, nationalist movement. The movement uh, for having uh, uh, not just Palestinian, but mm-hmm. you know, Egyptian and, and other national existence. And when you say uh, autonomy, uh, I cringe a little bit because uh, the Palestinians are not going to be satisfied with anything short of sovereignty, and that mm-hmm. indicates okay. that you know they have their own life. Um, so Magnus and Antonius were talking one day. And I have a copy of uh, of what Antonius wrote down afterwards. He said, Magnus was very depressed. This was 1936-37. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was very depressed about any possible peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, mm-hmm. between the Zionists and, and Palestinian nationalism that was just emerging at that point. So, Well, let, let me ask uh, you something. There's There's some words that come out in... Christian 
circles uh, in in the me- Christian media and things like this about describing that period of time. And one of the common understandings within those circles is that part of the agreements of the founding of Israel was that the nation of Jordan was supposed to be the de facto Palestinian state and that people who defined themselves as Palestinian were supposed to reside within the borders of, of Jordan as part of this arrangement. Is there any truth to that, or if not, can you clarify? No, not really. Uh, it is a late uh, explanation uh, of the uh, very extreme uh, Zionist uh, Jabotinsky, uh, whose father, I'm sorry, uh, Netanyahu's father was the secretary to Jabotinsky. And at the 1919 peace conference, uh, they defined the state of Palestine that included Jordan, included Cisjordan, as they call it, across the mm-hmm. Jordan, right. uh, out into the desert. And uh, this was, uh, in the British plan of colonialism, was to be sort of a keystone state in between Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. Uh, and they would have a colonial mandate from the United League of Nations for that. Uh, that uh, uh, rapidly broke down because uh, the uh, Saudis came to power in Mecca and Medina and the Hejaz, as they say, mm-hmm. in the western coast of Saudi Arabia, and the Husseinis, the clan that had right. for hundreds of years, were were sort of deported to uh, to uh, Amman, Jordan, where the British established uh, uh, a, uh, a sort of uh, second mandate uh, called the Jordan uh, State of Jordan. It wasn't a state until after the Second War, but uh, they uh, they were probably. Uh, pretty wise in in what could they do <laughs> with with uh, the Husseinis, uh, who were very important people in terms of Islam. Uh, they'd been in Mecca for a year, you know, for mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years, and direct descendants of the Prophet, that sort of thing. Uh, and they set them up uh, across the river from the Mandate of Palestine, so they had a double mandate, and of course it was in conflict to some extent. Jabotinsky uh, always claimed that they should, uh, that Israel should have all of the original mandate as proposed in the 1919 peace conference. Well, of course, he became uh, a, a terrorist and a violent uh, person uh, organizing violence and uh, eventually fled to America at the beginning of the war and died here. And Netanyahu's uh, father was uh, was his secretary for a short time, uh, a year or two, and before his death. Um, this Jabotinsky idea of Jordan as the Palestinian state uh, simply won't work any longer. Uh, for one reason, the Palestinians on the West Bank are saying and and thinking and doing everything to remain where they are. They, they say we we've been forced out before. We're mm-hmm. not going this time. But in the UN agreement, did the UN agreement intend for Palestinians to stay indefinitely in the areas that are now known as the West Bank and Gaza? Oh yes. As a matter of fact, uh, at in 1948 when Israel was created, um, there was an estimate by the United Nations that uh, the land ownership in Palestine and the land west of the of the Jordan River, uh, that uh, 
a Jewish national fund and other Jewish organizations owned about a four to five percent of the land. And in the 1948 war, they eventually got 78 percent of the land, although they also had some uh, Palestinians uh, who became citizens and remained in Nazareth and, and places of that kind. But uh, essentially, they they went from five percent to uh, to seventy-five uh, percent of the of the mm-hmm. land uh, being owned by uh, by the Israeli government. Okay, but you're saying that the that the the UN mandates what was approved for the land of Israel intended to retain the West Bank and the Gaza Strip for the Palestinians when when that was settled for the nation of Israel. And I I know I'm probably oversimplifying it, but that that was the general understanding. Oh yes, uh, oh. the League of Nations actually, not the UN, because the UN yeah. wasn't until after the Second War. So in 1919, the League of Nations gave a mandate for Palestine, and there were all kinds of assurances to the Palestinians at that time from the British that, uh, uh, well, the Curzon mem- uh, Memo is, a, mm-hmm. is the favorite uh, citation on this, in which he says, he was the Foreign Secretary, he says uh, uh, the uh, 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 His Majesty's government uh, will, looks favorably upon the creation uh, of a Jewish state. Uh, I'm sorry, of a Jewish homeland, not a state, a Jewish homeland uh, in in the Holy Land in in mm-hmm. Palestine, without prejudice to the rights of any of the indigenous inhabitants, and without bringing any of the uh, other Jewish. Uh, uh, you might say, uh, 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 peoples from uh, various parts of the world, uh, particularly in the Middle East, because the British were concerned. Uh, you know, the second largest Jewish city in 1948 when Israel was created. Uh, can you guess what it was? Well, I know New York City is up there uh, somewhere. and uh... That's number one. <laughs> uh, Tel Aviv is... Tel- is okay. number three, and and Baghdad is number two. Okay, hmm. right. I knew they had Baghdad a lo- large was, presence. Yeah, Baghdad was bigger than Tel Aviv at wow. the time. Which Didn't is a which is a long. Well, they, they had that long association with their time in Babylon and the yeah, Talmud yeah. and things like yeah, that. Of course, uh, that, yeah, of course that almost back. almost became a second homeland. I, I would say for the for the Jewish culture uh, was Babylon. Well, wasn't the first homeland in a sense uh, because. Uh, well, Abraham came from that neck of the woods, I guess you yeah, could say. Yeah, um, yeah. He moved through there. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a couple of hard questions that I know our listeners would want to ask you uh, that they struggle with, okay, and they hear. Um, mm-hmm. If this was understood, that this that this uh, arrangement with, with their homeland and surrounded by other indigenous people where they were, um, why did these Arab nations declare war against Israel at, right at the time of their announced statehood? Why were the conditions that forced these nations into an immediate war state with them? Well, again, it's a matter of defining. Uh, when Israel declared her independence as a state, and remember that the original mandate said that it would be a Jewish homeland, not a state. Uh, Curzon menu, a memo made that very clear, and so mm-hmm. did the mandate itself. Uh, it was not to create a Jewish state, but a Jewish homeland where people could uh, feel free uh, of the pressures 
of European anti-Semitism, primarily. Uh, they recognized uh, the anti-Semitic uh, strains both in Russia mm-hmm. and uh, Poland, uh, in particular, and and uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. And just lost but, millions uh, of their own just before that time. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the 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 uh, uh, the whole uh, point was to create a state uh, that uh, you know suddenly it had uh, all the aspects of the state. It had a it had a sort of legislature, a Jewish agency. It had had uh, a leader, Ben Gurion, and so on and so forth. And the Arabs suddenly realized we're losing Palestine uh, because the, during this second war, uh, the Jewish brigades in the in the British army uh, took home with them their Enfield rifles and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the '48 war was largely fought with uh, World War. World War One type of, mm-hmm. uh, armaments, um, plus a lot of inventive things. But uh, uh, so the Arab armies uh, declared that no, we don't want a Jewish state. You didn't say it was going to be a Jewish state; it was Jewish homeland. And before this, there had been a series of resolutions, only six months earlier, in November of forty-seven, uh, based on a whole bunch of studies of what what to do about. Uh, Israel-Palestine and what to do about uh, the Jewish homeland and so on. And they came to the conclusion that uh, perhaps uh, Israel as a state uh, could be conceived uh, to have maybe 50% of the land, even though only 5% Mm -hmm. was really owned. And so uh, the Arabs were, you know, both uh, insulted and and very very angered by, by this whole thing. And so they began, uh, all of them declared war except um, Lebanon, and uh, uh, the only really effective force uh, was uh, the Arab Legion, <laughs> of, mm-hmm. which Israel, uh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, British had created in, in Jordan. Do, do you think they and were they just, were the one? Yeah. I'm sorry? They were the ones who, who really made the West Bank possible. They were the ones who took the... Uh, uh, kept the land from being overrun by the 60,000 Jewish soldiers that uh, the, uh, the uh, Jewish people were able to uh, field. Do, do, you, uh, fact, do, do you think that the circumstances, whether it was ambiguity in the agreements or, or what it might have been, or, or no, no ambiguity, do you think they were justified in launching their attack versus other diplomatic means of resolving it? Well, they certainly given up on diplomacy, particularly when uh, Truman decided to recognize uh, Israel without even specifying, uh, you know, the 50 percent of, of the land would, would be Israel's. And that wouldn't have been acceptable to most of the Arab states at that point, and not acceptable to the Palestinians, um, because they, they owned most of the land. Um, I think... Uh, I think it's not a matter of whether or not they were justified. They were probably looking back at the history of that, uh, battle by battle and everything. Um, they were um, somewhat naive in thinking that they could take on this uh, uh, Jewish Palmach uh, and Haganah army mm-hmm. that had been created during the Second World War. Hmm. Okay. Unwise, unwise. 
now in in the modern era, um, one of the things that's been very unpopular that Israel's done is built these big tall walls and walled off these areas. But, yeah. But but the common argument is we've got to protect our people because they're lobbing missiles over from these areas from Palestine into uh, you know, is, Israel. We've got to protect our citizens. What are we supposed to do to protect ourselves? What What are your comments on the right Israel has or the proper way to protect themselves from these kind of attacks? Well, one Secretary of State said recently that uh, the United States would find it very, very difficult with the kind of technology uh, that is, you know, openly available uh, to protect Israel against uh, the kind of attacks, missiles, I mean, uh, which come over the walls. Uh, sure, you can protect against uh, suicide bombers, perhaps, maybe, but uh, with walls. Mm-hmm. But those walls are, you know, kind of incredible there. Uh, I think four times the length of the Berlin Wall and mm-hmm. uh, almost twice the height, and in places three times the height. And I, I go back to my statement about the ghetto. It makes you feel like Israel is walling themselves in rather than walling the Palestinians out. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess the question I'm having and trying to understand their argument, and you could it's like chicken and the egg. You can say, well, they're lobbing missiles because you did this to them or, or whatever. But, but they sense an immediate threat to the citizens in Israel from missiles and things that are launched from neighborhoods. Uh, and if they go back and attack those neighborhoods, they're going to kill innocent civilians. Uh, you know, it's going to be terrible. It's going to look terrible for them to do that. And so I sense they're a little, uh, they're not quite sure what to do to protect their citizens from these attacks. Now, I recognize a lasting peace may possibly temper a lot of that if, if it's something that, if it's feasible to have it satisfying for all parties. Is, is there some other solution in the meantime until that's done that Israel can more effectively protect their citizens from this kind of sure. attack? Sure. Uh, uh, I think a, a ceasefire, I know the Hamas uh, people and I know the Fatah people, the uh, Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization people, and uh, uh, both of them would uh, would gladly have a ceasefire and, and start to open up uh, as a beginning to real peace, open up uh, not just the gateways from Gaza to Israel, but also the gateway to Rafah. When we were there four years ago, before the election, uh, on the day of the election, actually, uh, uh, there were 1,500 people a day going from Gaza into Egypt to get out and get get work. Uh, now they're they're hemmed in. There, uh, there's every reason to think that uh, there will be an explosion eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I um, I think that it's very unwise uh, of Israel to pretend that uh, she can stay within her walls and and have uh, security uh, from missiles and other things that can be so easily invented and done in small shops. But but, but but weren't know. these kind of attacks happening before the walls existed? Uh, yes, uh, uh, some of them were, but um, down in Gaza, there's no wall, of course. There's just a fence. Uh huh. Right. And and uh, uh, 
that's where the missiles are are being launched from, and and they land inside of Israel and in, in uh, the Barata, one of the one of the uh, uh, kibbutzim. Uh, frankly, uh, in nine, uh, two years ago, we were in Israel and we were talking with the present defense advisor to Netanyahu, and uh, he was a general. Um, been in the Knesset, however, been a political general, and uh, he was angered by the ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. And he said, we have a plan, and we're going to implement it, and we're going to, uh, essentially, he didn't say this, but this is what he meant, we're going to take care of all of their leaders and take care of all of their uh, missiles. Then he paused for a moment, and he said, but, the, you know, there's one problem. We don't have an exit strategy. And we sort of looked at each other. <laughs> it, it sounded like uh, some of the U.S. generals on occasion. Hmm. Uh, um, one of the... Uh, ceasefire is, is the way to go. Okay, a ceasefire. And you, and, uh, you have a reason to believe that uh, Israel would not want a ceasefire with Palestine right now. I mean, why, why is that not happening today? Well, that's that's what the defense advisor to Netanyahu told us, but uh, I don't know. Um, I, I think uh, the fact that they broke the ceasefire that had been negotiated by uh, by uh, uh, the uh, the former um, okay. prime minister. I'm so, having a, a senior so, moment here. That's okay. Uh, You're saying Israel broke it without provocation? Uh, yes, and it was interesting when they broke it. They broke it... Uh, it was negotiated in June of night of 2008, and they broke it in uh, November 4th, 2008, which was our election day. Uh, <laughs> that is, they huh. they assassinated uh, 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 some some Hamas leadership, and that the response was uh, rockets, okay. and then the ceasefire broke down, et cetera, et cetera. And so they but hadn't they been receiving protect. any attack. Yeah, they hadn't received any attacks. No, there weren't any attacks, no. Hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, Hamas was quite successful for about a year after they were elected, uh, almost a year and a half, uh, in preventing any attacks uh, across the line, hmm. um, both rockets and, and other attacks. But Very that broke down in 2007. Okay. A year. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, the hardest working man in radio, Bionic. Uh, he's been listening to too much James Brown. Uh, that was a, that was a hard section that we had. <laughs> a lot of, uh, difficult information came yeah. out, a little history. Um, you know, this is the kind of information I suggest to all of our listeners and what we need to do. Go, go fact back. Check. Yeah, there's a few things we'll that I'm definitely going to go fact check. And you know, be careful of what you use to fact check. Um, it is so hard, whether you're talking to people or other information, to find out the motivations. All we want to do here on Future Quake is do the best we can to try to find objective information mm-hmm. and then be able to put it into our biblical worldview, take real-world information, and then try to look at it. And, you know, the prophecy thing may make some of this stuff moot, like we said before. Um, you know, the, the Lord's going to have to solve this ultimately. But um, well, Somebody's going to have to do it because we aren't. Pray for the people in the Middle East yeah, until then, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, uh, nice. And Merv, would you tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to say goodbye. All right, goodbye. Come back for the next section tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, triple question mark, huh, bionic. Okay. This gives you a lot of food for thought. Yeah. I mean, like like I said, there's a lot of things I want to really fact check. I don't know if I can agree right. with everything he said, but right. I appreciate his candor and his viewpoint. And that could be true for a number of our guests. Uh, this gentleman has a very prestigious background, and we're talking about our guest, Eugene Byrd, the president of the Council for National Interest, talking about the search for the truth and real understanding of the Mideast crisis. As you know, that's something that we sort of dipped into the hornet's nest and trying to sort out things. Yeah. We just People feel like so there should be free inquiry. Crazy about it. Christians yeah. should respect each other as they ask hard questions, try to work these things out, and not be intimidated, at least by each other. Well, I don't and agree. Asking questions. You're a heretic. Yeah. Well, we can get that for a number of issues yeah. here. But no, but none more than this, Israel. This is a free thinking zone right here. Um, grab your Bible. Uh, that's where you're really going to find answers. We're just trying to get actual facts on the ground from... Someone who's been in the Middle East, and even that, you need to check and be Berean about all things said. But here's our last segment with Eugene Bird, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. I've got two major questions I want to ask you before we wrap up here, and one of them is another very touchy topic. Do I get do I get paid for overtime? Well, here? I tell you, I know I know we chatted a little before we went on air. Can you give us about five or six minutes? Oh sure. Is that course. possible just to wrap up I'm here? Kidding. We're leaving I'm kidding. a lot of a lot of questions on the table. Well, we our uh, our own timeline for our show is also a defining factor, but um yeah. You mentioned on your website and this is commonly understood by others but also very controversial that there is actually a good deal of espionage that goes on our own country from the intelligence services in Israel. Can, can you verify is that true and if so if they're if they are an ally of ours? What is the purpose yes, uh, of why they're doing this? Member, as a former member of the Department of State, I can assure you that <laughs> I can tell you story after story of their attempts to penetrate our embassies abroad, <laughs> including a sound-powered microphone in the office of the ambassador in uh, Tel Aviv at one time. Uh, yeah, and uh, do we do the same thing to them? Probably. I don't know, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah. Quite frankly, um, uh, the the worst part of the Pollard affair, and he's still in jail, of course, and and Netanyahu. Um, I was down uh, for the negotiations uh, uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland the morning that uh, Netanyahu insisted that uh, he could not sign the agreement that had just been negotiated with Arafat. He could not find the agreement. This was when he was first prime minister, you know, in 1996, 97. Uh, I think this happened in 97. Uh, because uh, he would have to have Pollard, uh, the spy, 
taken from jail in, in North Carolina or South Carolina, I guess he is, uh, and delivered to his plane so that he could fly back to Israel. And, and uh, uh, the the fact is there there have been a lot of security breaks, including by the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, our competition, shall we say. Uh, they they had a, an occasion uh, just three years ago in, in which uh, major amounts of uh, uh, material on our relations with Iran, on what our what our intentions were with regard to Iran, were, were passed to uh, a political officer at the mm. Israel embassy. So it happens all the time. There's uh, there's even uh, <laughs> a tour of Washington, and you can, uh, among the other things, they they point out where Pollard copied all of his uh, top secret and secret uh, material. Uh, they point to the apartment that was rented by a political officer from the Israel embassy. What, what is the main information they want from the United States and and you know in our territory? Um, technology. Um, there, they have a satellite camera system, which was uh, directly stolen from from the KBH, I think it is, corporation up in Ohio. And this is uh, certified by um, the Wall Street Journal, as a matter of fact. So, okay. Uh, the technology is the big thing. Mm-hmm. Do we have any other nations that we contribute large sums of money to, including buying weapons for? That also has any notable espionage going on with us? Uh, boy, I wouldn't be able to say, but I would think that uh, my old country of India, where we have just signed a new nuclear agreement, and I, I think a very unwise one, incidentally, but um, that uh, they probably uh, are um, also very interested in our technology and 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 in. Uh, uh, what I call the, the feeder technology. You, you mm-hmm. get uh, right. scientists from India, and, and and suddenly the word goes to somebody uh, from uh, Israel in Ohio, and and you know this is the way it happens. So, so we're giving India large amounts of foreign aid, and particularly money to buy weapon systems, and they're doing this also at the same time to us. No, at one time we had a public law 480. Uh, grain agreement with them, uh, which provided the substance for their green revolution uh, during the 1950s and 60s. And I remember uh, the negotiations uh, with India at that time. Um, uh, India, at one point, we owned one-third of all of the currency in India because we sold mm-hmm. the grain for rupees. <laughs> uh, my suggestion right now to the Obama administration is to do the same thing with General Motors. Start selling GM cars and GM and technology hmm. to to Africa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for local currency. <laughs> that, now that would be interesting. Have, yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, let, let me ask you uh, the, the the question that really um, initiated me contacting your organization and how I even found out about it. Uh, as we close right. here, um, the ultimate question. 
uh, yeah, if you were crescendoing here, a few, uh, and believe me, there's a lot of questions left on the table here, you know, that as I feared. But uh, a few weeks ago, uh, circumstances were at a fevered pitch uh, off the waters of Israel because of the flotilla of boats that were coming, bringing aid to uh, Gaza. As you know, they were stormed and boarded, and one boat in particular uh, had some uh, loss of life. There were some uh, people on board killed by the IDF. Uh, and I heard this gentleman, uh, Ambassador uh, Edward Peck, who was interviewed, who I found out had an affiliation with your group. He's a colleague of yours. Uh, he used to be the chairman. But, but, okay. <laughs> he but used he, to be the chairman of the NI Foundation. But he was on at least one of the boats uh, that was there witnessing yes, the portion right. of what was going on. We have heard yeah. people that want to really find out the real truth have heard so many stories, so many wild stories on both sides, and it's very hard to sort out the agendas of the people telling the stories. And I'm wondering here if you could give us, as best as you can, an unvarnished explanation of what really happened on those boats and the flotilla that came up to Gaza. Well, I shouldn't substitute for Ed. He's he's busy tonight, as you know, but uh, on another program. But... Uh, um, Oh, first of all, I need, to, I, I need to clarify something here. Uh, he, he, yes. he used to be an ambassador, is that correct, In on our behalf in yes. the Middle East? Yes, yes. He, he was ambassador uh, in in the Western, the Maghreb, as we say. Uh, and uh, he also was chief of mission in Baghdad. Okay. So On behalf of the U.S. Beginning. government. Um, yes. Because uh, we've heard a lot of stories in Christian circles, uh, reports from the IDF that, that that these boats were full of terrorists. These, I think they're called IHH terrorists, uh, that were put on board from Turkey, and that they were all. In yeah. fact, most of the stories that I've heard reported in Christian media from places like Debka talked about how they were organized in platoons and brigades. Well, the entire ship was full. Yeah, was is yeah. that true, well, or, or is Mr. Peck uh, a uh, representative of one of others that don't fall in that? I don't know about the organization, and uh, Ed was not on the Turkish boat. Yes, okay. but if you've ever dealt with Turks, you know that they have a very low level of, um, shall we say, uh, sufferance before they they become uh, very very strong and uh, sometimes violent. Uh, the Turkish brigades during the the Korean War that were sent from Turkey to help us in Korea were famous for being uh, the most uh, brave and most difficult uh, uh, people to uh, dislodge from positions. Uh, they, uh, I think, the group on 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 the Turkish boat was of that gender. That is, that they were uh, very strong. Uh, they felt very strongly about this situation in Gaza. And the IHH is, uh, as far as I know from uh, Turkish and other friends of mine, is uh, a rather benign organization, uh, confrontational, yes. It's confronted the uh, old Turkish government. Uh, so it's... Um, it's a human rights organization, uh, but it's much more than that. I couldn't say that it's an Amnesty International or anything like that. I, mm -hmm. I don't know enough about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
IHH is a very acceptable organization in in Turkey. Were they were uh, they there in large numbers on that Turkish vessel? Um, I don't know the percentage of it, but uh, they helped organize it. Yeah, they okay. did help okay. organize it. Okay. Yeah, Whether, but the IHH is is um, not not what is being portrayed by the uh, Israeli media at this point. Now, and you notice that the <laughs> Israelis in their usual, pardon me, clumsy fashion, have managed to make uh, enemy of, of Turkey, and uh, they were their greatest friend in the mm-hmm. Muslim world. Now, were there a large number of weapons on board these ships that were intended to pose a threat to Israel? Actually, uh, I heard an Israeli say, and of course we don't know because it was taken to Ashdod and was uh, was uh, cleansed there of, of its cargo. Uh, there were um, probably some what I'd call baseball bats and that sort of thing, but there there were not uh, there were not any firearms. So nothing that would pose according, a... according to an, according to an Israeli officer. According to Israeli, so nothing that would pose a threat to the existence of the state of Israel. Uh, no, it probably posed a threat to the. Um, to the people that were boarding in the sense that they they fought. Mm-hmm. And, but if you were boarding a Turkish ship uh, in the middle of the night uh, <laughs> coming down a rope, you would probably uh, get into a fight also. Now, now I don't think it was were the anything. Communi- were the communications cut off from that ship? Um, I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the reports I had heard, and there were some people on board that said they were cut. I don't mean to interrupt you, sir, but I know our time's getting short. I, I know you need no, to go, no, too. just want to make sure our listeners hear, hear the, yeah, uh, the information as close as from the source as possible. Now, Mr. Peck's, the ship he was on as part of this flotilla, uh, what were the kind of people that were on board with him, and what was what was their purpose? Uh, well, they they some of them were from Turkey, but uh, most, I think, were from Europe, and there were very few Americans. I don't know the number. I forgot to ask uh, Ed how, mm-hmm. how how many Americans there were, but my impression is it's a couple dozen. Okay. And what what were they there carrying were about on board? Okay. There were about 200 on there. Uh, they were carrying medical supplies and, and uh, other things that are needed, okay. uh, education supplies that aren't being allowed through and that sort of thing. Now I know they 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 gave up the um, um, they didn't offer resistance. I understand they sort of let the IDF take over. How did the IDF soldiers treat them when they boarded? Um, well, well, uh, Ed made a statement to me a few days ago. He said, "You know, uh, I have a diplomatic passport as a former ambassador." And he said, when they saw that, the eyebrows went up and they took me out of the line and. So <laughs> they took special care of him, right. and they put him. I think he was the first man out uh, on a plane. Okay, okay, later. But I mean, as they commandeered over the ship, how did they treat the people on board when they took over? On that ship, I don't think there was any uh, real uh, resistance or confrontation. Okay. Uh, from from what uh, uh, Ed told me. Mm-hmm. Okay, because when I when I saw his testimony, I believe it was on CNN when they interviewed him, 
uh, I thought it was either his ship or one of the other ships that was given over that they had some of the people on the ground and sort of had boot on the neck while they were doing things like this. And I didn't know if that was true or not or if that was maybe a misunderstanding. Well, maybe I misunderstood, but there uh, there were, you know, um, a couple of other ships, and uh, he may have been talking of those. I mm-hmm. thought that uh, uh, none of the people were really assaulted uh, very strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, aboard his ship, there mm-hmm. may have been, you know, there may, uh, after all, you have you have a bunch of guys with uh, what we'd call a high testosterone level coming down a rope mm-hmm. <laughs> in the middle of the night, uh, and uh, you know what's more interesting is what what are the Israelis going to do with the 200 women that are coming on a ship from uh, Tripoli, Lebanon, right, and uh, sailing on Saturday. Uh, I understand that they're advertising in Israel now for strong uh, women who can handle a fight uh, and will help in uh, taking over this. Uh, so, <laughs> so send women down to fight women. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, you know, our famous? our media will have a time with that. <laughs> well, now, now with this with, with this original flotilla, I know we're in the last couple of minutes here, but the original flotilla, they obviously knew that they were going to have some kind of confrontation. They may not have known it was going to happen in international waters in the middle of the night, you know, where media couldn't cover it, as opposed to being in, you know, the bright of day near the block the blockade. Yeah, side. yeah, no, um, obviously that's why they did it. But they still expected a a confrontation. What were they really hoping to accomplish, given the fact they knew that they would probably be taken over? Well, I, I think bringing to public awareness, uh, you know, it's been 18 months that uh, Gaza has been closed. Longer than that, almost 20 months that Gaza has been closed. And you know and I know that the media get tired of reporting the same thing. They mm-hmm. they have to have something yeah. uh, new and different. And this, this is new. Uh, here are a bunch of of people, uh, ordinary folk and uh, humanists and uh, uh, some uh, reverends and, you know, some Christian reverends were aboard and uh, they they came into uh, hoping to get the material into Gaza itself. I understand the Israelis are now releasing the material that they took off the ships and are going to send it. Yeah, although, although from the what I've what I've read lately, Hamas has held the shipments up because they took some stuff. I guess Israel said this stuff will go in, mm-hmm. but these few things will go, will not. And Hamas has said it either all goes or none of it goes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Well, yeah, that, that was just uh, in the last day or so. It's it's now. Now, now I understand <laughs> these are not just weapons that are banned, but things no, like, like cho- peanut butter, chocolate, uh, other kind of things. Crayon. Like these, these are for kids. <laughs> these are punitive actions, are they not? As opposed to just yes. merely being a, yes. a means to preserve the the yes. military protection of Israel. Yes, and uh, the uh, 18 months ago, the end of the Israeli invasion. I remember a friend of mine who uh, was an advisor to uh, to the uh, not to the prime minister, but to one of the mm-hmm. ministers in Israel who. Who said we're going to place them on a diet? Okay. The whole population. Well, you know, this is against international law. It's against almost everything. And 
the point is they could reach out and have a ceasefire that would probably be very effective. We found that Hamas was policing the situation in Gaza mm-hmm. very, uh, very benignly, very good. Uh, so it's we become, had no, we become had no a problem. It's become a kind of siege then in other come, words. Come so. join us on our next uh, tour in November. That's not a bad idea. Uh, well, I think yeah, it's good you'll for... see it on our, our website, cnionline.org. And you can take uh, people into Gaza? Yeah, sure. Okay. We, uh, we go in from Egypt, of course. Now, in, we, in, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, and then we leave uh, through to Egypt because we, the Israelis, even though we're only 40 miles from, uh, uh, from uh, Jerusalem um, in Gaza, uh, they, they force us to go all the way back to the Suez Canal and up okay. uh, to Eilat <laughs> and not, not that way. So, so any, uh, you know, it's a game, and and yeah. it's a, it's almost a children's game. It's it's as someone said to me today, the situation is ridiculous, and we are be, being made to look responsible for the ridiculous nature of the mm-hmm. confrontation, mm-hmm. not just in Gaza but throughout the Middle East as such. You know, there's so much anyway. more. So much more I want to ask you, and I'm sorry to keep interrupting you here because I know your time's up, and so is ours. But but could you please close? And I want you know, sometime when you can make time for us, I'd like to have you back to talk in more detail about these really difficult questions because we appreciate hearing information from directly on the ground, and, and we have a range of opinions of our listeners, and they can take this information for what it is, and and maybe it'll stimulate them to study further. But but uh, I understand part of your activities as far as cultural to get people to know who people really are rather than just hearing through the news and interaction that there are uh, people like I believe even a, like a Palestinian Christian who's a who's a teacher and instructor um, that actually will come speak to individuals over here about what it's like in Palestine and the Palestinian territory. Is that correct? Uh, well, yes, you're probably talking about Alex Alad. Who, uh, whose brother is called the Gandhi of the Palestine National Movement. Um, Alex Awad uh, is founder of Bethlehem University, which is an evangelical school. And uh, it's about, uh, about 2,000, 2,500 students, something like that, um, now and uh, growing. Uh, we sent him down to Mississippi and on purpose, sent him into uh, evangelical uh, situations uh, with Baptist uh, churches and various other churches uh, down there. And uh, he came back uh, shaking his head and saying, you know, they hadn't heard uh, our story, the story of Palestine and the occupation and so on, all the 40 years that Israel has been there. Um, And uh, he said... uh, they were crying. They were crying and saying, why weren't we told about this before? So uh, that kind of uh, a response uh, is the kind of response we, we like to see because it's genuine and uh, it maybe leads somewhere uh, to tell your congressman that, uh, hey, uh, those are people over there. Don't treat them as just uh, animals and and." Uh, Opponents of Zionism and of Israel, uh, they they uh, they are quite capable of making peace with Israel. Mm-hmm. The question is, is Israel capable of making peace with them? 
So, I'm so, not sure. So this gentleman is an evangelical Christian speaking to other evangelical Christians with a with a common uh, framework, yeah. at least spiritual framework, to have yeah. an understanding and a communication. Yeah, and they'd, they'd never heard of a Palestinian evangelical. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, but, and that's what was unique about it. If you would pass on I the think word, we'll bring him back. He he would be <laughs> ideal for our show, and uh, we'd like to interview him on our show if you don't mind. Uh, because uh, we, we can sure, he, some of the spiritual we, issues. We, and things. we have had him. We've had him on our show, I think, uh, six months ago, and uh, uh, you could do it from uh, from Bethlehem. Okay, that would be wonderful. Okay. We would love to record right. that. And I want and to thank you. I'm sorry. Tell your audience one thing: if they want to communicate with me, uh, you know, all holes bar, <laughs> no holes barred, no holes, yeah. all holes. No holes barred. Uh, my uh, email address is gene, G-E-N-E, at cnionline.org. Wow, uh, you're very bold to well, do that. <laughs> it, it was entertaining, and uh, I'm sorry uh, I couldn't hear more of your uh, uh, humor and jokes and so on and so forth. I, I'm i afraid I uh, absorb most of the time. Well, you're the guest, so. This is a, this <laughs> is a, we had you on. this is a serious issue, and we cover lots of serious issues, but yeah. this is one that's, that's complex. It poses special challenges for those of us who are believers in the Bible. We understand there's a certain prophetic, uh, destiny. We don't always mm-hmm. understand when God is going to work his timing or how, but one thing we know for sure is that uh, our Savior Jesus said that blessed are the peacemakers, and that is, unambiguous and attempting to bring peace to anyone uh, even if it is done in vain but the effort of bringing peace is something that Christ does and we that's one thing that we know for sure and anything that we can do to be more understanding more empathetic to understand all sides to be able to appreciate what's at stake for them and their families and to try to facilitate and act in a manner to help promote peace rather than to inhibit it is something that I feel confident is within the goals of Jesus Christ. And we appreciate the information you've shared with us to add to our study to understand what our real responsibility is and understand what's really going mm-hmm. on. And I'd certainly like well, to welcome you back at any time you'd be willing to come back right. with us. Very good. And we'll talk about the old city of Jerusalem next time. That sounds yeah. wonderful. We would being, being students of prophecy, right. we can't wait for that. Thank you so much All for right. joining us, right. Mr. Bird. Right. Thank you. Bye bye. We're back at Future Quake with Doctor Future and Tom. Quadrangle question mark? Huh. Okay. Bionic. That's it on the question marks this week, right? Hopefully. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, because it's, it's Thursday. Quadrangle. Um, what did you think about his comment near the end there about the Palestinian evangelical coming and explaining things to churches over here? That's interesting. Well, it's like anything. Like I think I mentioned earlier, this whole Middle East thing is very complicated. There are more Christians with, within the Palestinian jurisdiction than there are in the Israeli jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh, you know. and, and even within Israel, we sat more with the opinions of so many evangelicals in America mm-hmm. with the secular atheist leadership than we do the Orthodox sure. Jewish part of Israel. Although, although you know, uh, uh, Mr. Bird's comment that Hamas, Fatah, and the PLO would immediately, you know, right. go for peace if the Israel would just sit down right. with at the table. I think is, yeah, I, I would challenge that right. from a number of things. So, well, one thing I hope all of us can agree, listeners and us, is that even so, come Lord Jesus, please sort this stuff out. Yeah, Jesus, well, pray please for, pray for those people. Pray for peace. Pray for individual families, whoever they are over there. Pray that they would be spared uh, as many as possible. 
and that pray that Jesus would come in to protect all who are innocent on all sides. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for this, and tomorrow's Tomorrow's Tremors. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wait, Merv needs to come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. we got to go. All right. Come back for tomorrow's Tremors tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom. I don't really agree with the U.S. Supreme Court these days. Bionic. Uh, Let me guess. That's foreshadowing. It is. Okay. We're going to hear about that today. Uh, A a much better foreshadowing would be Tom, systematic failure on the horizon, Bionic. Okay. So that's a two-middle name. I don't think we've experienced that before in Future Quake. I guess you could say that, you know, like between Tom and Bionic, you had... Systematic failure, a Tom, and another bionic in there, really. Okay. Well, I guess we should let our particular new listeners know that this is Future Quake. and um, They'll figure it out eventually. The the reason why we're even stranger than a normal day is because it's Fridays. Uh, Monday through Thursday, we have our interviews. We hope you enjoyed our guests this week. But Friday, it's different. And what do we do on Friday, Tom Bionic? Asking you the... 200th or so time? Well, generally, generally, uh, I stay a little bit late at work and cook dinner. Yeah. Um, and then yep. it's really good. That's the significance of it. Of course, to me, it's tomorrow's tremors or <laughs> today's review of the future's news. <laughs> you're like, not even, you're like, it's not even funny anymore. Ah, <sighs> boy. It's what the listeners think of yeah. what matters. Okay, it's a time where we review the news for the week. We, we relax after the end of a hard week. As I like to call it. Revelation 18 news, news. That's right. And go read Revelation 18 if you want to know what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, we're ready to jump into some stories. Do you have anything you want to share with us? Um, not publicly. Okay. Any stories or do you want me to dive in? Go, go ahead. Okay. This is a, this, look how short this one is. This is half a page. Usually, yeah, yours are usually very... Sorry, don't lengthy. mean to. No, 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 I mean they're good and everything, um, it's very long. Th- there's two anomalies to this on a typical Dr. Future story. One, it's short. Two, it actually is good news. What? So you know me, I'm Mr. Positive Thinking. You know me. I'm the Norman you Vincent Peale. You always get me like, it's like, it starts Christian out good radio. news, and then it's like, and then they all celebrated a peace agreement, but then the airplane exploded in midair, and everybody yeah. died. No, I don't think Your this story. one has this, but story, I guess we'll, we'll see the rest of the story. This is from uh, a uh, website, I believe it's a newspaper, uh, Israel Today, uh, out of Israel. Uh, it says, uh, growing, growing Israeli interest in Yeshua, or Jesus. Hmm. Uh, the Messiah, And this was uh, one of our listeners out there sent this, which I really appreciate you sending this out. Uh, the Messianic Ministry Revive Israel, located just outside Jerusalem, reports that its staff and partner ministries have experienced an upsurge in interest 
among secular and religious Israelis in the person and ministry of Yeshua, Jesus. Really? Yep. In their latest newsletter, Sahar S. writes that a group of 40 young Israeli college students recently visited the Revive Israel offices to ask questions regarding Jesus and the New Testament for a course on Israeli history and culture. They were surprised to discover that the promise of a new covenant is written in the Hebrew prophets, Jeremiah 31. The biggest news to them was that Yeshua loved the God of Israel and that his teachings were focused on a fulfillment of the moral law in the Ten Commandments, Matthew 5, said Sahar. A number of them came with preconceived ideas and even anger toward Messianic Jews. At the end of the meeting, a young religious man came and admitted that his perspective had changed about who we are, Israeli Jews who believe in Yeshua. The group was reportedly surprised at the level of kindness shown by the Messianics despite frequent harassment of and attacks on believers of Jesus in Israel. The newsletter also included an update on a four-week Jews for Jesus campaign in central Israel that is currently winding down. Ziev N. Rides writes that the group received contact information from no fewer than 2,000 Israelis interested in hearing more about Jesus. No, that's I positive. I believe this was uh, Pastor Chris who had sent this over. That's a positive And I one. think that's great news. You know, we, we have these difficult shows wrestling with what's the proper situation for us 21st century Christians regarding Israel and the mm-hmm. state. One thing hopefully we can agree on is that seeing people in Israel come to Jesus is something that all of us can celebrate. All of you, us Christians, whatever our opinion. You would think so. I hope so. <laughs> I'd hope so, too. You know, uh, John Hagee might, I don't know what he thinks about it, but the rest of the rest of us, I yeah. think, uh, can at least agree on this, that more people in Israel are anywhere, Egypt, Iran, any place in the world, come to Jesus. Sure. That's a good thing. So uh, I also want to clarify the word. Uh, Marcy, one of our listeners, had uh, clarified an earlier show on a story I'd read or that we had talked about. Uh, she said that as far as it being illegal to share your faith with others, she said it was to someone under the age of 18, according oh, to her knowledge. Once her, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that, but oh. that's what she said. But I've always, yeah, I've always heard it that it was just sharing your faith. Is that's all I'd ever read, too. But thank you for clarifying that, Marcy, yeah. sister. And uh, she said also, in support of this story, that uh, followers of Jesus were increasing uh, in Israel. And I was just wondering, could you do a real quick prayer for the people of Israel that they would embrace their Mm -hmm. Messiah? Yep. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, just gather here real quickly, uh, uh, Dr. Future and I here. Uh, We just praise your name, Lord. And we gather with everybody else who's who's out there hearing us driving, Lord. Uh, And we ask that we all join in prayer together. Uh, that you will send your spirit there to all the people of Israel mm-hmm. uh, so that they yes. will uh, they will hear and know know Jesus Christ as their Messiah for the, perhaps the first time ever, Lord. Um, change their hearts and change their minds, Lord. Give them a new heart. Give them a new mind. Um, we just pray, pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, bro. Yeah. Story. All right. <clears throat> Secondary foreshadowing first. Okay. California on verge of system failure. This is uh, via the Globe and Mail. Arnella Sims has seen a lot in her 34 years as a Los Angeles County court reporter, but nothing like this. Case files piling up by the thousands, phones ringing off the hook, 
Forced midweek courthouse closings and occasional brawls as frustrated citizens queue for hours to pay parking fines. You know, this is interesting. Back when I lived in California, this mm-hmm. was even way before the budget crisis. Uh, I got a I got a speeding ticket in the mail, so I went down there to you know talk right. to them about it, and uh, they said, well, it's not in the system yet, and I said, well, here it is. <laughs> and right. They said, yeah, I can't well, do anything. Yeah, well, we can't do anything, but here's a letter that says that you came down and tried to do something. And this was like 10 days before the court date. Hmm. And uh, I said, well, so what do I do? And they said, well, you know, I mean, it's not in the system. You know, come back here. Come back here that day. And then I went back there that day, and the court was closed on my court date. And so I went back a couple of weeks later, like, look, I've got the letter. I've got the ticket. Mm -hmm. What's going on? And they said, well, you're still not in the system. So... Three and a half years later, I finally got this thing saying that mm. they had tried my they had tried my case last week. And I wasn't there. in absentia. Yeah, yeah. So I had you to, were on the lam. Yeah. Did they did they do an arrest warrant for you? Yeah, they sent the SWAT team. Did they? Yeah, the Detroit SWAT okay. team out to me. Okay. Which was tough because I was in California. So. Yeah. Um, wow. And you it, had since moved from California, I presume, when this had happened. Yes. Okay. I actually got the thing in the mail. And uh, as interesting, I, I was going to visit relatives in the area. So of my five-day trip, one day was spent down at the Fremont City mm. Courthouse wow. arguing with a guy. I'm just glad you weren't in the pokey. No, I, I am too. Can I tell you just a real quick government story like that, and I'll be quick. Okay. Um, I used to work in the federal government, and my first trip that I had to go overseas, they told me to go on and get, I was young, they told me to go on and get a passport, a government passport. And the guy going with me was a little more seasoned. He said, well, he says, you just never know if something gets hung up. It might be a good idea just to shell out of your own pocket a, a personal passport, yeah. too. So I went and did that, too. Uh-huh. And so I had signed up for the other one. They said, oh, you'll have it. Because you know, they had to do it 90 days ahead of the trip. Uh-huh. Well, I forgot about the government one. Well, not only did weeks go by and months, but years went by. And many years later, I got this call out of the blue saying, uh, you need to come over here and pick up your passport. And it was so many years, I had I had no idea what they were talking about. I could not remember having to turn anything in. And so I finally went over there, and I went, and I thought about it. I thought, oh, I remember doing that. And so I went and asked to see it. And they showed it to me, and it was a five-year passport. It had been five years and a month since they'd issued it before they called me. And so it was Sweet. it was had expired just waiting for them to call me to pick it up. And I Good. showed it to them. I said, doesn't this seem strange to you? And they said, wow, what's the problem? Just sign for it. So I kept that as sort of a symbol, along with the day I signed it. Awesome. With it as a yeah. sign of government efficiency and why people would want to have smaller government, I don't know. When it you is so capable, like it's so yeah. capable to solve our societal like problems. 1984 Brazil or something. Right. You know? I mean, BP actually works more efficiently than the government. Yeah, I know. At least they can get oil out of the ground. Uh, so um, whether you want it or not. Yeah. Um, anyway. People think we're becoming a third world country, says Mrs. Sims, uh, she continues. They don't understand. It's a story that's being repeated all across California and throughout the United States as cash-strapped state and local governments grapple with collapsed tax revenues and swelling budget gaps. Mass layoffs, slashed health and welfare services, closed parks, crumbling superhighways, and ever larger public school class sizes are all part of the new normal. California's fiscal hole is now so large that the state would have to liberate 168,000 prison inmates 
and permanently shutter 240 university and community college campuses to balance its budget in the fiscal year that begins July 1st. Mm. Think of California as Greece on the Pacific, bankrupt and desperately needing a bailout. We are on the verge of system failure, warned Gene Ross, executive director of the California Budget Project, an independent think tank based in Sacramento. None of this would matter much to anyone outside the not-so-golden state except that California's budget crisis is a harbinger of a grim dilemma that all Americans will soon confront. The country has built an elaborate and costly machine tied to a regressive tax system that can't generate enough revenue to pay for it all. So what do we do? Mm-hmm. And uh, Here's what I predict will happen. They will get a bailout mm-hmm. by the rest of the nation. Now, I'm not just picking on California. It could be some more states, too, later. Yep. They'll get a bailout, and there will be no adjustment to the six-figure salaries of the state employees as part of the process. Zero. You will see some municipalities go bankrupt because they depend on tax revenues from property taxes. Uh, municipalities will go belly up. I mean, you have state a lot. You have a lot of state employees that don't even, even city employees that don't even have any kind of educational credentials, getting like 160 grand and higher. Sure. Um, my big, my big. My big thing is the uh And I'm not talking about officers. even head of a pol- police or fire. I'm talking yeah. about other Oh, I know. My sanitation. Big, my big my big ballyhoo on that is the police officers who work until they're 45 and then get 3% uh, you know, 3% of their their highest pay and right. that last year, which is the one that they used to draw off of, they work like 150 hours a week. Yeah, uh, with yeah overtime yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah. Then they retire and then take another job with the police department uh like right. The next town over, yeah. and so they're essentially drawing two salaries. Double dip. Yeah, yeah. It's like God. Yeah, everybody I worked with in the government, yeah, they usually they would draw a military pension twenty years. Uh-huh. Then they'd go uh, work for the government, go get another pension, and then go after that retire, go work for defense contractor and get a third one, mm-hmm. triple dipper. Nice. And most of them didn't have anything else to do with their life. You know, otherwise they'd waste their time helping their fellow man or volunteering yeah, or something well, like that. Well, it's important that it's important. There's a lot of things to money. buy. Yeah, more a lot money of things. Know to what to do with? I like that. Uh, uh, I like that one. That one story someone told me uh, about how there was a three-month gap in their employment. Yeah. And uh, they were making. They were. They had like eighty-seven thousand dollars between, yeah. you know, May and August or whatever yeah. it was. And they said that they couldn't they couldn't make make it on that eighty seven thousand dollars. I think I told you that. I believe you did. And that was back in that year was more like two thousand two, like eight wow. years ago. Back when eighty seven thousand. Yeah, something. and this was a chaplain. <laughs> it was a chaplain had full Gosh. like health care and other benefits like that. So what could you possibly spend your money on? Know. I don't know. I just don't yeah. know. That's that's terrible. That's that's why we have missionaries like you've mentioned from Indian places come over and, and just for like up. tearing their clothes. Yeah, yeah, when they see the opulence. Totally, of, just throw up all uh, over the place. Just well, you know, just like our facility here, the Rotunda Future Quake. Well, that's uh, different. Yeah, the visitor center <laughs> and the grounds. You know, the yeah. the statues of us probably people would be offended by that yeah. up front. And the, Fountains and things. Yeah, all that stuff. With all the the big income, that's one thing I like about Future Quick. It's a big income generation. Big cash generation. Money just flows in. Yeah, it's like a cow that lays cash. Well, can I read one a little longer? Uh huh. This one, I wish it was as upbeat as the other one. And I I hate talking about a sister 
in the Lord, but she has been invited to come on our show, and I hope maybe she'll come on our show. This is about uh, Janet Porter. Oh, um, I wonder if this was going to make it into the mix. I don't know if you read uh, this. This is a little accumulation because there's been an update here. Okay. Um, as you know, Janet Porter was the one really leading the Apostolic Reformation merger with the activist religious right group people, mm-hmm. bring them together, did the May Day thing, organized yes. it. She's a columnist for uh, World Net Daily, uh, does a lot of stuff like that. She has a uh, ministry called Faith to Action and a mm-hmm. radio show. She was dropped by a radio network after that, VCY, mm-hmm. after they interviewed Sarah James of uh, Heroscope, who actually was on uh, um, View from the Bunker. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, so they decided to drop her. And, well, she's come out swinging but she's not going after VCY. I don't know if you read this article on World Net Daily. No, she's going after uh, the Heroscope. Lady. Yeah, let me just share with this. this is, in case you all haven't seen this out in our audience, people from uh, View from the Dunk, uh, Bunker probably already heard this, but her article, her regular column on World Net Daily says, Christians for the separation of church and state? Question mark. The separation of church and state. I could be reading from the Constitution of the former Soviet Union, a decision by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or a fundraising letter from the ACLU. But instead, I'm repeating a philosophy of, quote, Christian groups like Discernment Ministries and their website, Heroscope. No kidding. I hope they put a link there. They did put a link on it, and they got lots of of traffic. Yeah, they did. No kidding, she, uh, Janet continues. There remains a very vocal group of self-proclaimed Christians who believe their self-proclaimed. I like that. Who, awesome. Who believe their quote spiritual gift is criticism, and their role is to join the ranks of the ACLU and police the streets for Christians who dare step outside the four walls of the church into the light of day. They insist Christians must stay within the church, singing from the same page of the same hymnal, perfectly pious and free. Uh, from those not legalistically aligned. All while our nation and our freedoms are burning to the ground. No, they're not involved, just like the Christians who, quote, sang a little louder from their hymnals so not to hear the screams from the trains headed to the concentration camps. That's what Heroscope's compared to. So, so it's a, it's a, if you're either, you're either with me or you're with Hitler. Or with Hitler, yes. Sweet. In the 1950s, when Darwinism was allowed in the school system, these, quote, Christians sang their hymns and did nothing. When the Supreme Court ripped out the right to pray in schools in 62, they sang their hymns and did nothing. In 1973, when the Supreme Court ordered the recognition of, quote, freedom to kill innocent children, they sang their hymns and did nothing. Apparently, quote, onward Christian soldiers was, wasn't on their song list. So she's emphasizing onward Christian soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, uh, uh, Forgetting the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, and violating God's command to be a voice for those appointed to die, is no longer enough for these folks. The cultural Nazis want everyone who is obeying God in the culture to cease and desist immediately. I have to wonder how these folks sang, how these folks sang, this is a light of mine, in Sunday school. Hide it under a bushel? Yes. Or maybe instead of the verse, don't you try to blow it out, they're saying something more in line with the current actions. We will try to blow it out. Anything to keep Christians from entering the public square. Apparently, they'd rather hear those groups rewritten to praise Barack Hussein Obama, mm than for Christians to stand up against the indoctrination of the culture. Is there any actual information Well, she's not enlightening you with this. No. Discernment Ministries and their slander site, Heroscope, I think that's how they advertise it, a slander site, yeah. is highly critical of any Christian group that engages in any type of political or cultural activity. Instead, they embrace, quote, abandonment theology. 
as David Kupalin described, uh, as in his World Net Daily column several years ago, being salt and like in a dark in a dark and decaying culture isn't their concern. Let the culture and the Constitution rot for all they care. They're awaiting the rapture. They've blasted the Manhattan Declaration and all the signers as a, quote, another dominionist covenant. They've attacked Focus on the Family's Truth Project, the National Day of Prayer, the Freedom Federation Summit held at Liberty University in April, leaders such as the late D. James Kennedy, Jim Garlow, and, and quote, patriotic American dominionist David Barton, unquote. Well, David Barton is um as her has some has some very right. has some views that I guess in my opinion aren't really supported by the facts. Yeah, but I don't know. I assume she's referring to him as Dominionist. Oh. This group also opposed in a in a positive light. This group also opposed the recent solemn gathering of prayer and repentance in Washington D.C. on May Day. She believes that uh, and believes that Christians standing in the gap to repent for our nation, as Moses, Daniel, uh, Phineas, and Nehemiah did, was a mistake. Their slander site begins by blasting people who weren't even there. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 must not be in their Bible. They've also gone after my good friend Dr. Rick Scarborough, who, who they claim is, quote, very connected to the Dominionist agenda. Judge Roy Moore, Joseph Farah, Reverend Paul Blair of Reclaim America, and David Crow of Restore America are others they've been targeting. I'm proud to be listed among these great leaders. None of these people support a, quote, dominion theology that seeks to establish a theocracy. Um, I don't understand why they support the seven mountains of power yeah. or dominion. I, I thought that was the whole point of the whole seven mountains, wasn't it? I, that's where I thought it came from. We must be ready for Christ's return, but that is not to say we, quote, hunker in the holy bunker, clutching our ticket to heaven, admit one until then. Whether they like it or not, Luke 19.13 makes it clear that we are to, quote, occupy until he comes. What? Uh, that was the one verse of the parable taken out for a financial yeah, manager. I mean, to manage. Well, that's out of context, yeah, uh, from what I understand. Now, you got to understand, she's distancing herself from dominionism, but her earlier article in the same World Net Daily said, uh, it's time to take dominion. Yeah. Now, I don't know what that what, what that means. That's not dominionist. Well, and, she, and like you said there, she's saying, look, we need to occupy... Until I come, right. which is sort of the standard the calling card for dominion. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, let, let me just skip down here. For the rock throwers, any effort at building unity among Christians is treated with contempt. But as Christ said and Lincoln reiterated, united we stand, divided we fall. They were right. I don't remember Christ saying that, but I guess he did. United we stand, divided we fall? Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure he didn't say that. What? Could have been plucked out as a tiny weed by Christians uniting decades ago. It's really sort of like blasphemous, isn't it? United we stand, divided we fall. According to what you're uniting with. Somehow, like, (laughs) I don't know. But, well, for Jesus to say that, though, like, Uh, isn't that a little bit blasphemous? Like, we all have to get together and... Well, let me, let me close this I'm down sorry, here. I'm sorry. If you're still having a hard time discerning what to do, here's a helpful hint. If you find yourself on the same side as the ACLU, homosexual activists, baby killers, and enemies of God, chances are you're on the wrong side. Put the rocks down. Come out of the closet and bring your manger scene with you. Spend more time reading the Bible and the news than all those rock-throwing slander sites because all the people that they're targeting, they're the ones fighting to keep the Internet, the airwaves, and the public square free. And if they're successful, they'll also the ones who'll keep the padlock off your closet door. Now that was written by her shortly after she had been thrown off that show. Now, if I can just quickly add an addendum to this, mm-hmm. uh, there's been another uh, network that's thrown her off uh, since then because of her dominionist 
teaching, and mm. this is what they said. And so I went to her website, uh, faith2action.org. Mm-hmm. It's not working. It's down. So I don't know what's going on, but she's still writing articles for WorldNet Daily. Uh, this is another one now. You have to take in the context where I'm getting this from. It's called rightwingwatch.org. So they're not going to like right-wing stuff. So just look at facts and, you know, take commentary yeah. for what it is. Um, I've written several, this person says, uh, I've written several posts already about the fact that Janet Porter had her radio program dropped by VCY America uh, following her May Day 2010 prayer due to the Dominionist underpinnings. That move was all has all but closed down Porter's Faith to Action organization. So Porter spent a lot of her energy attacking discernment ministries uh, as being responsible for getting her fired. Well, it turns out it was not just VCY that dropped Porter's radio program. Worldview Weekend has also terminated its relationship with her over her May Day prayer rally. Now, you understand there's a bunch of other mainline conservative Bible people there, too, along yeah, with the Dominion. Not, not, well, I don't know if that one, but there were some main significant ones there, um, you know, in, as well as the Dominionists. So it's not just Janet Porter, yeah. even though she organized it. Uh, Brandon House, who's been a longtime supporter of Porter's and even regularly hosted her F2A radio program in her absence. Now, okay, he was substitute host for her. Mm-hmm. Announced that Worldview Radio has parted ways with her and would no longer be carrying her program. Mm. Uh, we, on our radio network, our online radio network at Worldview Weekend, pulled a program, Faith to Action, which was a radio program, uh, of, or was, of Janet Folger. I've sat in for Janet a few times when we sh- uh, should be unable to, when, when she would be unable to host the show. And I've been a guest on her show many times. In fact, we we had her speak at our Worldview Weekend several years ago. Uh, but in the last few months, I've been com- concerned, as in the la- particularly the last few weeks, uh, that I think we are parting company is in the important area of theology and doctrine. So we had to pull the program. Uh, a lot of this came to light after the May Day event that took place in Washington, D.C. Hmm. So, and it says, there were some of the groups I believe that were represented at the May Day event uh, who believe in dominion theory, kingdom theology, and those who believe in extra-biblical revelations. So for that reason, I cannot take part. Uh, and the more I saw on the Internet with some of the folks, the more I felt we needed to separate ourselves from that, particularly because it was confusing to the public. We alerted the staff at F2A that we were not going to carry their broadcast no longer on our online radio network, and that's the stance we've chosen to take. Um, hmm. And it says, uh, you know, they, they like for our nation to go to true biblical repentance, uh, but I'm afraid that some, for lack of a better word, some really kind of whacked out folks crept into the May Day event, and I, I did hear some stories after the event of some things that really concerned me and concerned some folks who were there themselves mm. with the Dominion Theory Theology people. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it just describes Those further. Things. Sorry yeah. to go longer than that. I know it chewed up. Yeah, stuff. That's okay. This is this is important thing. Christians are going to have to decide where they fall. Yeah, well, it's a, it's one of those things that we've sort of covered on our show, so it certainly is a germane. Now, she's still going to be doing WorldNet Daily, uh-huh. but even, even if her influence wanes a little bit, Dominion Theology is going strong, mm. and all of these other uh, regular mainstream Christian leaders are taking up the banner with them as well. Yeah, they, so they it's not just don't her. realize what they're getting sort of She gets a into. little fired up, it seems like, more so maybe than the other ones because she's been the point person. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. Well, there you have it. Tough, tough days for, for Miss Porter, it sounds like. I know that was a lot of stuff there. You got a 30-second story for us or anything? Oh, gosh. Monsanto wins the Supreme Court backs alfalfa seed planting. Not nearly as cool as yours, but... Yeah. Uh, the US, 15 seconds. Yeah, the, the U.S. Supreme Court basically said you can't stop Monsanto from 
planting their seeds, even though we don't know, have no idea what they'll do. Now, if I remember right, that's where they have not finished safety trials or any no, kind of things nothing, at all. Nothing. Which, I mean, there's no way they can even know long-term effects. There's yeah. no way they can do that. But yeah, even but the short-term, short-term stuff. Short-term effects, yeah. Yeah. So that's it. Well, after that BP incident where they took some risk and did some things like that to the environment, you I think we've learned anything? I don't know why you're so... Yeah, they, know everybody why. knows what they're doing. Yeah. They, they got it under control. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, someone who does have it under control is Merv. who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. we got five seconds. Bye. Come back for a next great show next week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.